On this episode of our award-winning podcast, we'll continue our discussion about polio and the recent outbreak that has caused some concern. Welcome to Modern Practice. I'm your host, Dr. Tom Villanueva, Senior Principal for Operations and Quality at Vizian and Practicing Internist. Joining me again is Dr. Marty Lucente, Senior Vice President and Chief Medical Officer at Vizian. Marty, welcome back. It's good to be back, Tom. So let's recap what we spoke about in the first episode. The risks are among people who are unvaccinated. Among the specific area in New York that occurred, they actually have a vaccination rate of 37%. And we spoke about that there are two types of vaccinations, the early one, which is oral. And among those that are oral, they were receiving the live virus that was contained in their intestines. And since it's a live virus, it has the opportunity to mutate. But these people can be carriers versus after the year 2000, if you were vaccinated, you received an actual vaccination into your arm or your thigh, in which time you create an immune response, but you can't be a carrier. Yeah. But I preface again, you're at risk if you are not vaccinated. Does herd immunity result in protecting someone if they're unvaccinated? Yeah, this is the case, Tom, as you look at it, right, is because of the nature of the vaccines that we use in the U.S., the injectable vaccines, we have a good systemic response and it prevents any CNS involvement of the virus. It does not upregulate the immune system of your GI tract. And so you are, if vaccinated, you are susceptible to being an asymptomatic carrier, which means the vast majority of the United States is at risk risk for being a asymptomatic carrier for this. What that means then is there's no herd immunity. Those folks can all be a vector to that percentage of our population who have not been vaccinated and therefore have no immune response protecting the systemic extension of a GI transmission. So this is a case we're not going to use herd immunity to prevent the transmission of this. This is one where the vast majority of our population is very right for being an asymptomatic carrier, creating a great deal of risk for the folks that are unvaccinated. So Marty, like many of us, I've never treated polio. Um, We spoke about in the first episode of flu-like symptoms that we see with most viruses, but then associated with back pain, headaches, and then the flaccid paralysis. Say I suspected, how would I make the diagnosis? So there's a couple things. There's GI-based diagnoses, which is virology off of stool samples, okay? But if you've gotten more active systemic illness, or if you've actually progressed to the acute flaccid myelitis, the diagnosis is often made through MR imaging of the spine. So you can sort of see the inflammatory response in the spine and accompanied with usually more confirmatory because of the nature of where that inflammation is presenting with a lumbar puncture, which is a CSF sample of fluid to actually run virology off of. So Marty, if we do suspect it, the diagnosis is there. I preface again, I've never seen a case in my career. Yeah. What treatment options do I have? There really are limited. This is another one of those viruses that we don't have a treatment for. So it's symptomatic, mitigating the fever and some of the GI symptoms. And then really beyond that, there's not a lot of treatment out there. And that's why vaccinations are so important, right? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So Marty, I've heard the term post-polio syndrome. Other than just long-term paralysis, what is it? That is what it is, Tom. It's the long-term paralysis that ensues, right? As we said, most polio cases are local GI symptomatology. A certain percentage go on to attack the nerves in the spinal cord and to cause muscle weakness. 
what you'll get is that damage to those nerves lead to paralysis and weakness and muscle atrophy through lack of nerve stimulation. But that's what post-polio syndrome is, is the resultant muscle weakness and paralysis associated with an acute infection of the nerve fibers in the spinal cord. So Marty, we talked about the best way to prevent getting polio is getting vaccinated. We also spoke about that herd immunity does not help you in these circumstances. Yeah. And then even because we're all such a reservoir, right? Mm -hmm. Because the way we're all vaccinated, we are a potential reservoir in addition to getting vaccinated so that you don't have symptoms. This is where hand hygiene and all of those other things really come into play, right? This is transmitted fecal orally, which means food preparation folks need to be diligent around hand washing. So this is a hand washing mitigation strategy as well, because the vaccine vaccine helps you, but a lot of these public health endeavors help you help everybody else block the chain of transmission. Even though it's asymptomatic for many of us, it's still creating a global population risk. And so this is where public health measures really do make a difference too. I couldn't agree more. What about those of us, you're just not clear if you got vaccinated or not, and you don't have access to your records. What would you recommend to those folks? I always tell people, check with your pediatrician and make sure they can usually determine whether you've gotten vaccinated or not, and then follow their recommendations. I would think if there is concern, it's worth probably getting the vaccine. But I will tell you, as part of most school programs, most child care programs, unless you've actively avoided and actively attempted to mitigate vaccinations, there are a number of safety measures in place all through pre-K to elementary school that really make it so that you would get a polio vaccine. So unless you've really made a conscious effort to not be vaccinated, the system is well reinforced that you have been vaccinated. There have been a lot of disruptions when it comes to normal childhood vaccinations during the pandemic. I think that this reinforces why for many of us, it's important that we get back on our schedules, particularly for our children. Yeah. If you take a look at the vaccination rates, and it's not just for polio, it's for measles, it's for a number of different pathogens. Mm -hmm. There has been a marked turnaround and a degradation of vaccination rates over the course of the pandemic. The pandemic was one thing that disrupted some of the rigor that we had built into our systems about really reinforcing the importance of vaccinations as part of getting into school systems, all of those things. So there was some disruption of that routine preventive care all throughout the U.S. and internationally during the course of the pandemic. You know, Marty, you and I have been working quite closely in the last few years, not only with COVID, but recently even with monkeypox and now polio as well. Any general takeaways? I know I certainly have some. This is a unique story. Yeah. This is a pathogen that is actually the byproduct of an aggressive and effective world vaccination program. Mm -hmm. The fact that we had two different approaches and the fact that it's created an ability for folks that have been vaccinated to become a transmitter, an asymptomatic transmitter. This is just an unusual set of circumstances all coming together. But something that you could see in a post-pandemic world where some of the routine preventive public 
public health measures were disrupted. And then in general, you've seen the rise of some anti-vaccination strategies, mm-hmm. some anti-vaccination organizations. Those emerged as generations became less and less connected and had less and less experience with some of the incredible misfortunes of the 40s and 50s with this and measles and some of those things. And when you start doing risk-benefit analysis, folks started to pay a little bit more attention to the risks, some of the minor side effects, and some of the perceived bigger side effects of some of the vaccinations. And without the pathogen actively out in the community and longitudinal loss of experience with the pathogen itself, there has been a decrease in the vaccination rates. And it created a perfect storm for us on this front. Yeah. And I also like to add, don't respond to fear, but get knowledge. And if we've learned anything in these last few years is the importance of common sense and appropriate hygiene. I'm a hugger. You know that. But truth is, I wash my hands frequently. If I'm contacted surfaces that are frequently used, and I wash my hands. Use the gel if necessary. I use prudence. If someone is looking ill, then do not have a direct or intimate contact with those individuals as well. Just respond to knowledge and not fear. And I think that would be my great takeaway in the last few years. The other thing that I think has become very clear, Tom, as you've looked at all of these pathogens over the last several years, is just how small the world is. Yeah. These things would be very regionally localized decades ago. They are not, right? Mm -hmm. This pathogen did not start in the U.S. It started overseas. And when they did the DNA sequencing, this variant appears to have commonality and lineage with London and Jerusalem on its way to Rockland County, New York. We've seen this with many of these diseases recently. The world has become a much smaller place and a much more connected place. Couldn't agree more. Marty, thanks for joining us on these two episodes and providing an important perspective on this emergent disease. And to our listeners, you can contact Marty at his email address in the resource section of our podcast. And if you have any additional questions pertaining to modern practice or simply want to send us your comments, please contact me at modernpracticepodcast.com. We've posted a link in our resource section as well. And please join us for other Modern Practice Podcasts. Subscribe today, like us, or send us your comments. I'm Dr. Tom Villanueva. Thanks for listening.